Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents part three and the conclusion of his teaching, The Prosperity of God. The Prosperity of God, Part 3. Amen. For this last session, I want to take some time to talk to you about the tithe. I know it may be fundamental to some of you, but I really believe you need to hear this, just so that everybody understands where we come from here at Faith Life Fellowship when it comes to giving. First of all, the tithe was originally something that was commanded by the law. And the law was given by Moses to the children of Israel in the wilderness. But as we're going to discuss, we're no longer under the law. We're in the new covenant. Amen? And there are no curses tied to the new covenant, which was sealed by the blood of Jesus. So the first thing we're going to do is dig into some of the context of Malachi 3.10, which we use as our faith basis every Sunday to believe God that He will bless us when we decide we're going to give generously so that others might be blessed in the work of the Lord. So Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 8, and then reading through verse 10, everything will be New King James today except for one passage, and I'll let you know when we get there. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Okay, when you read all of those verses, it sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? This scripture contrasts the blessings that would come if you obeyed the law of Moses and the curses that would come if you robbed God by withholding your tithes and offerings. But I want to set your heart at ease by reminding you that for New Testament believers, Jesus fulfilled the law in every respect and paid the price to free us from the curse of the law. Isn't that right? Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A jot and a tittle is like our version of uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Amen. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Amen. Because Jesus fulfilled every point of the law and took the curse upon himself, we get all the blessings of obedience to the law, but none of the curses of disobedience. So long as we receive the blessing of the Lord by faith, faith in what he did, 
and not in what we did. Amen. Stay with me. Ephesians 4.24 tells us that we have a new man on the inside, created in true righteousness and holiness, just like God. I know it's hard to imagine, but it's Bible. It's the truth. If you're born again, there's a new man on the inside of you, and he's got everything that Galatians 5.22 says you have. Joy, peace, love, temperance, self-control, etc., etc., So he created us like God in true righteousness and holiness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So you're righteous on the inside whether you act like it or whether you feel like it. Amen. And that righteous man... Uh, has certain characteristics that you see in the Scriptures. So now when new covenant men and women give, they can give out of a heart of righteousness, out of a state or a condition of righteousness. And it changes the way we look at giving. And it should change the way we treat giving. We don't give out of compulsion. We don't give because we feel we have to. We give because we have a generous liberal, righteous heart. Amen? So if we go back to Malachi chapter 3 and start from the beginning of that chapter, we can find out that God was speaking of a day in the future where people would give out of a state of righteousness, not out of a state of compulsion or because the law said they had to. Amen? Stay with me. Malachi 3 verse 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is talking about the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus 400 years in the future. Verse 2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. Listen to this. That they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Out of a state or a condition of righteousness. Do you see what I'm trying to get across to you? So Jesus is portrayed here as one that will come to purify the sons of Levi, who were the priests of that time, the, the, the servants of the Lord, who were responsible for bringing the offerings of the people before the Lord. And indeed, he would end up purifying all those who placed their faith in him with the following result we find in verse 4. Let me back up. The last part of verse 3 says that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Verse 4 says, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Amen. He's looking back to a time when men gave because they were righteous. They gave because they, they were thankful to the Lord. 
They wanted to bless and honor the Lord first and foremost. He's looking back to that kind of giving as opposed to the kind of giving where they had to sort of crack the whip and make them give and say you'll be blessed if you do and and not blessed if you don't. Amen. Hallelujah. He's looking for that day. When men get purified, when men get born again, he is saying, then the offerings of the people of God will once again be pleasant as in the days of old. In other words, there would come a time when giving would once again be from the heart and not out of a sense of obligation. Okay, so I want you to pay close attention. That means there must have been a time in the past, I've already alluded to it, when the offerings of men were pleasant to the Lord. And I believe that Malachi was referring to a time before the law when men gave out of their righteousness, not out of a sense of obligation, not because some law said that they had to. And if you search the Scriptures, the the prime example you find is God's man Abraham who lived about 500 years before the law was given. So when we read the story of the slaughter of the kings in Genesis chapter 4, we find out that Abram, this is before he was called Abraham, before he was called Abraham, he gave a tithe to a guy by the name of Melchizedek who was the king of Salem. So let's read that. It's fairly lengthy, but you're going to love it because there's cool military stuff in there. I'm going to love it <laughs> as a former military officer. Genesis 14, 8 through 20. This is the, to- this is the story about Abram. Tithing to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Genesis 14, 8 to 20. Now grace for these these words, these names of kings here. Every time I read these passages, I pronounce them differently. So one of these days I'll hit on the right one. Verse 8 says, And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. So if you read the whole story, the five cities of the plain, or the valley of Siddim near the Dead Sea, They were under tribute to these other kings, these four kings. And the kings of these cities made up their minds that they would free themselves from that bondage. I guess they figured, we got five armies, they got four, we can win this. But the battle did not go well for them, and they were put to flight. Some of them died in the battle, and some of them died in the tar pits as they fled toward the mountains. Verse 11, Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way, They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's pretty far north from the Dead Sea Valley. So as a former military officer, I I love this part. 
Abram, not normally known by most of us as a military commander, evidently had his own militia. Only 318 guys, but they were trained for emergencies just like this. So he armed and mobilized this small force of 318 men along with the forces of his allies, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner. And he led them in hot pursuit of these four kings. Can you imagine? Probably no more than a 1,000 men total going up against the combined armies of four kings. Amen. Verse 15 says, he divided his forces against them by night. You know, in military strategy books, that's one thing they tell you never to do. Never split your forces. So I guess he was led of the Lord to do so, and everything worked out. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So verse 13 tells us that Abram had gotten some pretty good intel from somebody that escaped from the battle. So he knew which of the four armies had captured his nephew Lot and his family, and he knew exactly where to attack them. Probably because they were greatly outnumbered, he attacked them at night, which is something armies of that day just simply didn't do very often. And evidently, this threw the four armies led by the king of Elam into such disarray that the fleeing armies of the plain led by the king of Sodom were able to reverse their retreat and attack and destroy them. Amen. I mean, it completely changed the whole landscape of this battle. Verse 16. This is the part I want you to really concentrate on if the battle stuff sort of went over your head. This talk about Abram. So he brought back all the goods. All the goods. And also brought back Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So Abram was able to bring back, I'll say it again, all the goods of the defeated armies, rescue his nephew Lot, his nephew's family, and all of his goods. I'd say that's pretty supernatural, given the odds that they were up against. Verse 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, to meet Abram, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Keraleomar and the kings who were with him. Evidently, after the battle was over, the king of Sodom came to honor Abram and the role that he played in turning things around and bringing them this great victory. Amen. Verse 18. This all has a point, by the way, and it does involve the tithe. You'll see. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Amen. That means he gave 10%. That's what tithe means. Off of the gross. Amen. And he gave him a tithe of all. So there's a couple of things you can learn from this verse. Uh, these last few verses actually. Genesis 14.20 is the first mention of the word tithe in the Bible. And if you look it up in your concordance, it means a tenth. It literally means a tenth. So when Abraham gave his tithe, he gave a tenth of all he had gained in this spectacular victory. Why? Because he was grateful. Why? Because it shouldn't have happened. He should have been easily defeated. 
But it was such a stupendous turnaround victory that he was motivated by the righteousness that was, was a part of his character to give a tenth of all that he had recovered and even all the spoil that he had taken from these four armies that he didn't bargain on getting. He got that too. He gave his tithe to the king of Salem, who is a type of Jesus, our high priest. And last but not least, Abraham gave his tithe 500 years before the law was given by Moses. That's an important distinction. Abraham, he was called Abram at this time, was a righteous man. And he tithed before he had to. Do you get that? Before it was law, he did so willingly and generously out of a thankful heart for God's great victory that he brought for him. He was insanely outnumbered, and he won anyway. Hallelujah. Praise God. So bottom line is this. It is accurate to say that we are not commanded to tithe because we are not under the law. You hear people, you know, this argument is all around us. The fur will fly and people will say, well, tithe's not, you know, we're not under the law. You know, No, we're not under the law. That is an accurate statement. But surely we should consider the example that was set by Abraham, the father of our faith, who gave his tithe to the high priest of God Almighty 500 years before the law. Amen. He didn't have to. He gave it because he was righteous. And because he was filled with thanksgiving because of what God had done for him. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Here's the thing that blesses me. He gave a tithe of the greatest increase in his life up to that point. I mean, fabulous wealth was bestowed upon him overnight. And he gave a tithe of it because he was appreciative. He was full of thanksgiving. He gave a tithe not because he had to, not because the law demanded it, but because he was grateful and wanted to honor the Lord. I know I'm belaboring that point, but it's a point that we need to belabor. Now I want to show you some New Testament validation of these concepts, okay? And by the way, it's okay if you disagree with me on some of this. We can agree to disagree, especially when it comes to curses and blessings and things like that. Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest, Continually. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to who this mysterious character really was. But it's clear from the writer of Hebrews that Melchizedek was a forerunner and a type of Jesus, our high priest. That's pretty clear. Now, we can speculate about the other. And I'll just let you know my thoughts. There are some that believe that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate form of Jesus and that he took the tithes because he was our future high priest. Others believe that Melchizedek was a type of angelic being that had a flesh and blood and bone body. 
But you don't need to worry about which one is correct because the type he represents is Jesus, our high priest. Amen. And you can ask me later which one I believe or if I have another belief. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not consequential. Amen. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it was prophesied in the Psalms that Jesus would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek clearly points to Jesus as our high priest. Now, Hebrews 7, 8, this is the last scripture of the lesson here. People tell me, and I've gotten into it with people over the tithe, uh, and they've said to me, well, you know, tithe's not even in the New Testament. It's a, it's a law thing. It's all under the law. And I'm like, well, have you, have you really read the New Testament? Have you read the book of Hebrews? Hebrews 7, verse 8 says, Here mortal men receive tithes. So tithing is in the New Testament. But there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Let me read that again. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So this is what this verse is saying. Here, that is here on earth, mortal men receive tithes that come from natural resources. But he who lives forever, that is Jesus, the fulfillment of the type, receives them in the Spirit. Even though the money only changes hands in the natural it is given to Jesus, our high priest, in the spirit, who then offers it up to God. And that's an important thing to know about your tithe. Every time I take our money back to the bank and I see the checks in there and I kind of have an idea who, you know, is given what and only because I'm the collector, I, I put my hand on the bag and I said, Lord, I just pray a harvest over every seed sown in this bag even the, the seeds that's not represented in this bag, you know, through uh, uh, Venmo and, and PayPal. Lord, I pray a harvest of every seed. Now, honor these people that gave to the work of the Lord. Every time I treat that money bag as a holy thing. Amen. Hallelujah. So let me wrap this up by saying this. I know that I've thrown a lot of things at you this morning, but I want to make one thing clear. And this is going to sound like heresy to some of my preacher friends. If you never give a dime to this church, please know that you're always welcome here. We don't want you here just to see what we can squeeze out of you. We want you here so you can be a part of our family. We want you here so, you can, so we can impart spiritual things into your life because we love you unconditionally. Also, if your faith isn't there yet to follow the example of Abraham and give a tenth of all your increase, then start where you are and trust him for maybe 5% and work your way up to 10%. I know it sounds like heresy, but some people got to start somewhere, you know. You got to start somewhere because, you know, some people make some pretty good money and they look at 10% and they go, whoa, I don't know about this. You know, just start where you are. Where's your faith now? You know, my daughters came to me. They weren't tithers at first. And they came to me and said, what do we do? And I said, well, just start where you are. What can you do? What can you conceive that you could do in giving on a regular basis? Give that and then trust God to enable you to get to 10% as quickly as you can. So I'm going to wrap up this series by leaving you with a wonderful promise from the lips of Jesus himself 
We read it earlier in the series, but this is in the Amplified Classic, which just is so awesome and really paints a beautiful picture of a person that's giving out of his heart, out of his righteousness, because he's so thankful for the things that God has done for him. 638, Luke 638, Amplified Classic. Give, and gifts will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Will they pour into the pouch formed by the bosom of your robe and used as a bag? Is that not awesome? Man, you're using your clothing to try and contain everything the Lord's pouring out into your bosom. For with the measure you deal out, with the measure you use when you confer benefits on others, it will be measured back to you. So bottom line, in all of this, if you learn to give generously so that others might be blessed, then God will use people to give generously back to you. It's a promise from Jesus himself. Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed part three and the conclusion of Dr. Forrest's message, The Prosperity of God. If you're in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 10 a.m. for coffee and fellowship and 1030 for worship and service. If you would like to learn more about us and hear more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.